You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Now I'd like to open up your Bibles. If you've got your Bibles with you, open up to Isaiah chapter 11. But I'm going to start reading from a different book. This must be a simply enormous wardrobe, thought Lucy. Going still further in and pushing the soft folds of the coats aside to make room for her. Then she noticed there was something crunching under her feet. I wonder, is that more mothballs, she thought, stooping down to feel it with her hand. But instead of feeling the hard, smooth wood of the floor of the wardrobe, she felt something soft and powdery and extremely cold. This is very queer, she said, and went on a step or two further. The next moment she found what she, she found that she was rubbing her against her face and hands was no longer soft fur, but something hard and rough, even prickly. Why, it's just like branches of trees, exclaimed Lucy. Then she saw that there was a light ahead of her, not, not a few inches away where the back of the wardrobe ought to have been, but a, a long way off. A moment later, she found that she was standing in the middle of a wood at nighttime, with snow under her feet and snowflakes falling through the air. She began to walk forward, crunch, crunch over the snow and through the wood toward the other light. In about 10 minutes, she reached it and found it was a lamppost. As she stood looking at it, wondering why there was a lamppost in the middle of a wood and wondering what to do next, she heard a pitter-patter of feet coming towards her. And soon after, a very strange person stepped out from among the trees into the light of the lamppost. That, of course, is from one of the greatest stories of our time, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it's that moment that Lucy, the first of all the kids, found herself in a very different world than the one that she knew. This steps coming towards her. This is a fawn. So it's a half man, half goat named Mr. Tumnus. She'll go on to discover in this very different world that her and her siblings are kings and queens. That time is very different there. And, of course, There lives the mighty lion, Aslan. You know, I think there's a reason that stories like this, they stick around, they resonate. We we love them all. And it's because even though it's fiction, it points to something very true, very true deep inside of us. I'm going to assume none of us have been to Narnia, right? Probably never been. But all of us, each and every one of us, has wondered what it would be like to be in a very different world. In a world that is, in one word, better. Better than the one that we know. Enter Isaiah 11. Isaiah, in chapter 11, he's, he's going to attempt something. He's going to try to exceed the limits of what we imagine is possible in this world. He's going to show us three things. Three things about this different, better world. He's going to show us it has a righteous king. He's going to show us it has a redeemed creation. He's going to show us a people at rest. So let's see if we can, as we read chapter 11 of Isaiah, let's see if we can, like Lucy, step through the wardrobe and see this different, better world. Verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah is describing here a righteous king. But the scene opens in a surprising way. The scene opens with God as a lumberjack. In fact, you can go read the last couple verses of chapter 10, and it is God clear-cutting a forest. And what he's doing there, he's striking down every king, every dynasty that they knew. See, in the ancient Near East, a big tree was a symbol for a dynasty. And we still use that language, don't we? We talk about your family tree. Well, then a big, strong, old tree symbolized a big, strong, old, powerful dynasty. And God has just cut every one of them to the ground. You may say, oh, that's good for some of them. He's clearing out the the evil Assyrian kings who have been the enemy of God's people. But then we find in verse 1, uh-oh, he's also cut down the kings of Judah and Israel. He has cut down the tree of Jesse. Now, Jesse, of course, is David's father. And so this is the Davidic dynasty that God has just cut down. See, as good as a king as David was, really his family only stayed in power in a united kingdom one generation after David with Solomon. After Solomon, Solomon's son split the kingdom and there was civil war and they were never united again. And it was a result, the Bible's clear, it was a result of the sin and rebellion of these kings. At the time uh, Isaiah is writing, Ahaz is king and he is a total moral failure. And you know, he, he's not an outlier in this dynasty. Evil king after evil king after evil king. So God judges them rightfully, and he cuts down their tree. But, Isaiah says, but, out of this old dead stump of a failed monarchy, a shoot begins to grow. A new hope appears. And what's interesting about this shoot is that it's a shoot out of the stump of Jesse, not of David. Why doesn't he say David? After all, this is the Davidic dynasty. It's supposed to be the line of David. Isaiah is trying to tell us something here. See, if it was a shoot rising up out of David, it would have been just the next king in line. Some son, some grandson on down the line. And and the hope would be that maybe one day one of these human kings will finally figure it out and finally be faithful and righteous and good and true and just. But God is telling us, no, 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 we don't need just the best version of the same world we've been living in. We don't need just uh, the next David. We need a new David. The different, better world begins with a different, better king. See, even David, even David, the best king Israel ever knew, maybe humanity ever knew, even he wasn't good enough. In fact, we know his own son attempted a coup and was killed as a direct result of David's sin with Bathsheba. When David goes and he wants to build the temple to God, God says... You've got too much blood on your hands, David. I, I can't let you do that. See, we need not just the next branch in the same tree. We need a recreation of the tree. We need a different, better tree. 
So he goes on, Isaiah, to describe this different, better David that will come, this righteous king. And the first part's the most important. He said he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And the way the language is written, everything that flows after, after that is a direct result of him being filled with the Holy Spirit. So you could say it's the fruit of the Spirit. Because this man has the Holy Spirit, everything else follows. So we get three pairs of descriptors. It's really fascinating what he pairs together. He pairs together wisdom and understanding. So wisdom is, you can think, practical skillfulness. It's technical skill, experience, competence. Discernment is it's the ability to decide between two options. So you can think insightful, understanding. You know, most people, most of us, we have one or the other at most. Some people don't have either, okay? Don't elbow each other, all right? We... Most of us, if we're doing good, we have one or the other. So I tend to be the latter. I can be insightful sometimes, but I am no practical help in anything. So let me just tell you, if me and you, if we're ever fixing something or repairing something, if I ever say, well, you know what we should do? You all have permission to ignore however I finish that sentence. I don't know what I'm talking about, okay? I am incompetent in that area, right? Different, better king, though. This different, better king, he has both. He has perfect skill and he has perfect insight. He is not lacking in any area. He has, we're told he has counsel and might. Now, most kings have a, they need a counsel. They don't have counsel. And so isn't that true? Most of our leaders, they, they need a group of advisors because the, everything going on in the world is way too complex for just one person. Not this king. This king doesn't need advisors because he always makes perfect plans. And not only that, not only does he make perfect plans, he has the strength to carry them out. I mean, how many times? How many times have you seen, you know, some politician, he makes a promise, and he may be fully intending to do it, and you agree with it, but you know, you know, as soon as those words are out of his mouth, he won't be able to do that. That's just an empty campaign promise. He won't be able to pull it off. Or think about yourself. I mean, how many times have you had the best of intentions, the best of plans, but you didn't have the strength to do it, to accomplish it, to pull it off? This different, better king is empowered to implement all of his perfect plans without fail. And we're told he has knowledge and fear of the Lord. He's saying he has the right knowledge and the right relationship with God. He is rightly related to God. So all the things that have plagued this world since the fall are completely absent in this king. No idolatry, no sin, no rebellion. All the things that caused God to get out his axe and turn into a lumberjack, not an ounce of it in this king. Not a speck. You will find none of them in this different, better king. He will only do that which pleases the Father. In fact, in the next verse, he says, his delight is in the Lord. His delight. Think of the things that kings usually delight in. Riches, power, prestige, prominence. Not this king. This king has one singular delight, and his delight is in the Lord. That word delight It's the word for aroma. 
a pleasant fragrance. And so for this king to do the will of the Lord, y'all, it's like walking in a bakery and they just took fresh cookies out of the oven. That's what it's like for this king. Now think about you. How many times have you done God's will reluctantly? I know, I know it's what I'm supposed to do, but I don't really want to do it. So maybe out of obligation, maybe out of fear of punishment, you do it, but you don't really want to do it. Not this king. Not this different, better king. He is going to delight in doing God's will. Next, Isaiah says he he doesn't judge by what he sees or decide by what he hears. He's saying this this king is incorruptible and he's not gullible. He he can't be tempted. He can't be tricked. So think about you. Probably any time you've been tempted to something or you've been tricked, you've been fooled into something, it was probably because of something you could see with your eyes or hear with your ears. Not this king. This different, better king. He, He sees beneath the surface to the true nature of everything. Then verse 4 and 5, we find out about his character. Twice he's called righteous. Righteous means perfectly conforms to a standard. So the perfect righteous law of God fits this king like a hand in a glove. He decides things with equity. That means fairness, level playing field. And he directs this particularly towards the poor and the meek because those are the people, when the playing field is not level, they don't have the resources to tilt things in their favor. And so they suffer the most. We're told he, he has faithfulness. That's truth, honesty, trustworthiness. And we're told he's clothed in these things. So he, it's his waist belt and his loin belt. Isaiah, Isaiah's way of saying, it, for, for this king, faithfulness, righteousness, they're like your underwear, not your jacket, okay? So we're gathered together here right now. We're gathered together with lots of people. Even if we walked around with each other all day, We might have a jacket or an outer cloak or coat or something. And as the temperature changes, as it suits us, and we want to be comfortable, we'll put that jacket on. And then when we get on uncomfortable, we'll take it off. We may put it on, take it off several times throughout the day, right? But we leave our underwear on, don't we? And I would remind you, this is his analogy, not mine, okay? So when Isaiah talks about underwear in church, we can talk about underwear in church, okay? It's a figure of speech. It means this different, better king is always righteous, always faithful. He doesn't take it on and off. If you're in his presence, he's righteous and he's faithful all the time. So let me ask you, as we've run through this description of this righteous king, is he describing you? Please don't say yes. I know you too well. He's not describing, he's not describing me. Is he describing anyone you've ever known, met, or heard about? I want you to know something this morning. I want you to know this. Every person here who is a Christian is a Christian not because it makes us happy, healthy, and wealthy, or it gives us safety, or it gives us an easier life, or it gives us more friends. Everyone who is a Christian is a Christian because we believe that Jesus Christ is this righteous king described in Isaiah 11. That's it. That's the whole ball game. He is this righteous king. And you know what? Jesus' whole life points to him being the Isaiah 11 king. He's from the line of Jesse, born in Bethlehem, the city of David. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on him. You know, 
thing about Jesus was, even his enemies said, he teaches as one who has authority and wisdom and understanding. He did delight to do God's will. He was, in fact, he was sinless. E, y'all, even Pilate, the man who sentenced him to death, even Pilate said, I can't find any fault with this man. I'll crucify him if you want me to, but he has done nothing wrong. And even in the midst of that crucifixion, as he sweated drops of blood, we still know his delight was to do the Father's will. Men and women, the Christmas message is that this different, better king has been born to us in Bethlehem. That's the Christmas message. Now, if that's true, if this king, a king like this really exists, well, then there must be a kingdom that is also very different. It's much better than life as we know it now. And so next, Isaiah describes how this righteous king brings about a redeemed world. Let's pick it back up in verse 6, 6 through 8. It says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child to put his hand on the adder's den. Okay, the world that Isaiah just described here is impossible. It's impossible. None of us have ever experienced a world like this. We all know a wolf is a predator. A lamb is prey. They cannot hang out together in peace. That's not how the world works. We all know a lion eats meat, not hay. A lion is a carnivore. That's its scientific nature. In fact, we have scientific categories for each of these animals because this is the way they always behave. This is who they are according to their nature. And the last example is the most startling example of this. So we're in Texas. Probably most of you have seen, especially out in West Texas, they love doing these rattlesnake roundups. I don't know why. You know, they got a big den full of rattlesnakes and some old man in there with a stick and he's picking them up and handling them and doing his thing, you know. Y'all, those things give me the heebie-jeebies just watching a, a grown man who knows what he's doing who's got the long stick. Now imagine you're watching one of those and all of a sudden out of the corner of your eye you see a toddler run into that rattlesnake den. What would you be thinking? It'd be horrifying. Everyone would be screaming and panicked. Imagine how different and better of a world you must be in to see that toddler run in And it's no different than a toddler running out to the playground. Isaiah is describing a world where God has changed the very nature of nature. Everything about this world as we know it has been transformed. And you say, well, how how can he do that? What what would make things so different? Because what Isaiah is is describing is in, in this different, better world... God has lifted us. He has set us free from the curse of sin. See, what if the world as we all know it isn't how the world has always been? You know, the Bible says that all of your individual sins, 
and all of the individual pieces of brokenness you experience every day, they're really just symptoms. They're just symptoms of a larger problem. And that problem is we are all under the curse of sin. See, it says that God created everything good, but man chose sin. And the moment that happened in the Garden of Eden, all three of our relationships were broken and severed. And the first of those three relationships is our relationship with creation. Our relationship with the world around us was changed and marred forever. And this is why we see, we see violence, we see natural disasters, we see decay, we see death. This is why a wolf cannot lay down with the lamb. It doesn't work. There's a famous line by the poet Alfred Lord Tennyson that says, nature is red in tooth and in claw. And he means red with blood. It means nature is uncaring, violent, and full of death. It's survival of the fittest out there. And this is why life is so hard. This is why work stinks so many times. We labor and we toil and we sweat. And so many times it feels futile. It feels fruitless. It feels like the world is working against us because our relationship with creation is under a curse. You know, I wonder, I wonder this morning, what most discourages you about life right now? Where do you experience this curse every day? You know, for some, maybe it's in your own physical sickness or frailty. You, you feel your, your body isn't what it used to be. It's decaying. Maybe you're experiencing some futility and frustration in work or in your finances. You know, I think of our Project Joy deliveries. We went out and did those Project Joy deliveries this week and meet a family whose husband was just diagnosed with a mental health disorder, finds himself in prison because he had a mental break. And so all of a sudden, this mom is alone with her kids. Meet a single mom with five kids, moved here for the first time away from other family and other friends, and she's tearing up because life is hard. You know, this... This curse, this severing of our relationship with the world, it it is the most easily provable doctrine in Christianity because we all experience it every day, don't we? We all know it deep in our bones. What if, and I want you to consider this, what is all, all your discouragement, all of your longing for something different and better is an inner testimony telling you it's not supposed to be this way. It wasn't always this way. That's what Isaiah is telling you here. Isaiah is telling you, this king will change the nature of nature. He will lift the curse from this world and he will redeem all of creation. In this different, better world led by a righteous king, we're going to live in a redeemed world. And you know what? We're also going to be a people at rest. Let's pick it up in verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So the first relationship that was severed because of the curse of sin was our relationship with creation. The, The next two are our relationships with one another, and our relationship with God. 
And maybe that's where you feel the curse most this morning. In the friction of some relationship, or maybe just in your own sin. You, know, you, you, you identify with the words of Paul who say, the, the good things that I want to do, that God wants me to do, I, I don't end up doing those things. But you know the bad things that I wish I didn't do, that's what I end up doing. Well, listen, in this different, better world, we will find rest because those last two relationships will finally be restored. Our relationship with one another and our relationship with God will finally be restored. He says in verse 9, they will not hurt or destroy. That word hurt means evil, pain, tragedy. Of course, you know what it means. I mean, anyone who's lived more than half a second has been hurt by someone else. And so you know, it is hard to imagine a world where you don't live in fear of being hurt again. You can't imagine that any more than you can imagine toddlers playing with rattlesnakes. You know what? It's also true. Anyone here who's lived more than half a second has been the one to hurt somebody else. And so for us in the world, it's hard to imagine ever being free of the guilt and shame of hurting others. We can't imagine that any more than we can imagine a wolf and a lamb lying down together. But in this different, better world, it's true. No one will hurt anyone else ever again. He says we won't destroy. That, that means corruption, ruin, to spoil. Man, how many times in life has something started off good? It starts off great, but then it's ruined. You know, like a delicious yellow banana, and you come back the next day and it turned black. In this different, better world, good things won't tarnish. They won't spoil how can this be? Well, he says, there's one way. One way our relationship with one another can be healed so much that there's no more hurt and there's no more destroying. Isaiah points to a very specific point on the map. He points to the holy mountain. Now there he's talking about Mount Zion. Mount Zion is where the temple was. That's where they built the temple. And the temple is the place of God's presence. It's the place where God and man uh, could be together. It's the place where God was worshiped. And you may not know this, the temple, the inside of the temple was actually modeled after the Garden of Eden. And so there's like, there's trees and fruits and it's made to look like this garden paradise because in a figurative sense, it was the place the curse could not go. It was to remind them of, of creation in the world as God intended it, a world free of the curse of sin. And you see, Isaiah says here, in this different, better world, the whole world will be the temple. He says the whole world will be filled with knowledge of the Lord like waters the sea. You've all been to the beach. How do the waters cover the sea? Well, it almost sounds like a nonsensical question, right? I mean, completely, utterly, totally. There is no part of the sea that is not water. In the same way, in this different, better world, there will be no part of the world that is not saturated with God's presence. In this different, better world, God, see, he, he won't be just kind of in some religious segment of our lives. He will be all of our lives, all of life and all of creation. Everything it means to be human will be surrounded by the presence of God. I love the way Ray Ortland put it. He said, the victory of Jesus 
will be the awakening and purifying and restoring and gladdening of all things human. His kingdom is the only final answer to poverty, hunger, injustice, illiteracy, and all the other sorrows we have created. But His grace, His grace will add sparkle to World Cup soccer, classical guitar, business ventures, monopoly with the kids, everything human to the greater glory of God. That's this different, better world. And watch what happens. Watch what happens when the whole world is God's temple, when we are all restored in our relationship with God. Verse 10, he says, people from all nations will gather together and be at rest. That word nations, it's the word goyim. It's the same word for pagans, for Gentiles, all the foreign nations of the earth that used to battle against God's people. Now, they'll all be gathered together under this righteous king. See, under the curse, sin scatters us. It separates us. Think about the Tower of Babel. That's what God did. He separated us. Think about Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. It's about to happen here with the Israelites, the exiles by the Assyrians and, and the Babylonians. But you can think about your life too. I mean, who here has not had a relationship separated, scattered because of sin? You know, it all goes back. It all goes back to the first scattering, the first separation in Eden. Because of our sin, humanity was banished from the garden and we couldn't find our way back. We were separated from God's presence. And so all our broken relationships with one another and with creation, listen guys, they're really just dominoes that fell down as a result of our severed relationship with our Creator. But don't you see what God's doing here? Sin scatters, but this king will gather us all back together again. He's reversing the curse. God will gather us together one day. He will restore our relationships with him and our relationships with one another and our relationships with creation. And then it says, we will be at rest. And you need to know, y'all, God does not rest for the same reason we rest. We rest because we get tired right? There's still plenty to do, lots left to do. We just run out of gas and we got to sleep. That's not why God rests. Why does God rest? God rested on the seventh day because the work was finished, because it was complete. It was done and it was good. So biblical rest, it has this idea of wholeness, completeness, lacking nothing, nothing left undone, nothing out of place. And that's the type of rest we'll have in this different, better world. So if you long for a different, better world, then I want you to know Christmas is for you. Christmas tells you this different, better world is coming because the different, better king has been born. The baby born in Bethlehem, it will free you from the curse of sin. He will bring you into rest of perfect relationship with God, relationship with one another, and relationship with all of creation. The question is, the question for you and me this morning is, how will you enter into this different, better world? What's the wardrobe? The pathway through it? Well, you know what? It's fascinating here. It's fascinating all the information that Isaiah doesn't give us. 
doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us when, where, how. He really only gives us one piece of information, the who. He tells us the who. Now, most people in this world are going to tell you the who is you. Your hope for a different, better world is for you to become the best version of yourself you can be, at least a little bit better version than you are right now. But Isaiah is asking you to imagine beyond the limits of what is possible for you. That same commentator Ray Orland said it this way. The people of God are known by a repentant willingness to let him be the hero. A repentant willingness to let him be the hero. And then he says, all our happiness depends on it. See, there, there's a signal in the text. So if you look at verse 10, it says, this Messiah himself, this person, he stands as a signal for all people. That word signal, it's actually the word banner. And it comes from when they would have battles back then. So back then, battles were just two masses of humanity coming at each other. And you get all mixed up and fight for about more than 10 minutes. And all of a sudden, it's really hard to look up and figure out, wait, which side is my side? Which way is home? Which direction is my king? And so what they would do when it's time to gather the troops back together, they would hold a banner up. And that banner was a signal. That banner would gather all those troops back together. In John 12, 32, Jesus said this. He said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And of course, he's talking about there his death on the cross. He's saying his death would be the event that gathers all, the, all his people together from all nations into his different, better world. And so we see this God who in the first, verse one was going around cutting down trees, that same God will eventually put his own son on a tree to die for your sin and for mine. And that is the way you step through the wardrobe. That is the way you enter into this different, better world. It is through the person of Jesus Christ and believing in him. The way you enter into a kingdom is by a relationship with the king. And if you're here this morning, and you've never done that, we would love to talk to you after the service about how you can do that. But for the rest of us, for those who have believed in this king born on Christmas, what do we do now? What do we do for now while we wait? Well, it's actually quite simple. Men and women, you live like it's true. You live like it's true. In your relationships, in every thought, word, and deed. Men and women, I hope you know this morning, listen, your calling, God's calling on your life is not to keep your kids perfectly safe and happy. It's not 2.5 kids and a nice house and retire when you're 65. No, no. It is so much bigger than that. Your calling is to tell the story of the different, better kingdom. You tell the story about how you live. You tell the story about how you, about how you love your neighbor, by how you parent, by how you work. You tell it by your hope and your joy in the midst of trial. You tell it by your humility. You tell it by asking for help with your sin. You tell it by forsaking the idols of our culture. And that's what this time of year is all about. It's about us telling the story of the different, better king. Christmas is all about us telling the story of the baby born in Bethlehem who is a better king than we can ever be and who will lead us into a better kingdom than we can ever imagine. So this week, I hope you'll tell the story 
of the different better king from Isaiah 11. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.